Welcome to Bill. This is Maggie, and I'm really excited today. We have a special guest in the house, Richard Banfield. He is the CEO and co-founder of Fresh Told Soil, a user, a leading user interface design and experience agency. And as we've heard from a couple of other of the authors before, he is the final co-author of the product leadership book, The Manual That I Live My Life By. Um, a mentor at Techstars, an advisor, and lecturer at the Boston Startup School, and many more. So welcome, Richard. Thank you so much, Mike. Yeah. Excited to have you here. Yeah. So Richard actually just gave an amazing talk here at Drift on high-performance teams and what makes high-performance teams. So what I would love to hear is sort of your quick overview on those four pieces mm. that help create high-performance teams. Then we can kind of go from there. So I'll do them in reverse order. Okay, um, great. They, they're definitely organized around something that's very motivating. So a vision or a mission that that's worthwhile, that gets you out of bed, that's super motivating. Um, but it's also somewhat ambiguous and probably somewhat unattainable as well. Mm -hmm. So I often use the example of JFK's speech going to the moon because that's a good one. They have no idea how they were going to get there, but mm -hmm. it seemed like a big, crazy idea that would uh, get people motivated. And that's really what it does. It aligns the skills of the people that are potentially going to be working on that project mm -hmm. around that. And then it also serves to uh, organize who's going to be involved and who's going to not. So when you when you when you put out a big idea, what you get mm -hmm. immediately is people say, that sounds awesome, and right. you're a nutcase. And, and that immediately helps you figure out um, which are the people that you, you need to continue to work with and which mm -hmm. are the people you can ignore. Um, and, and it's important because you need that divisiveness to help you find out who's going to be the group that's going to be part of your success. Mm -hmm. And you also need to know who you need to ignore because that's... You know, can't make everybody happy all the time. So that's the right. first. So you mean by who you need to ignore, which customers you need to ignore, exactly. which potential candidates you need to ignore for right. hiring, the whole thing. Exactly. Okay. Yeah. Uh, so that's element number one is that you mm -hmm. need a big mission. Mm -hmm. Within that, you need a product vision that's very specific to each product. So if you're Tesla and your big mission is to accelerate the transformation to renewable energy, then or sustainable energy mm -hmm. that's very different from we're going to make an electric car for this particular group of people right right uh, so even within the car uh manufacturing scope of what they do they have different products for different audiences mm -hmm. and that's important so the mission even though it's crazy doesn't mean that the product vision has to be crazy the product vision has to be very consumer or customer centric mm -hmm. and still aligned with that goal so that's so, yeah so basically Someone is setting this, the, mission, the mission, but then as a product team, you have to start to translate it, that into reality, and that's part of what the vision helps you do. Right. Okay. And the product team is normally the one that's initiating the conversation around what that product vision should be because they're mm -hmm. the ones talking to the customer. Right. So it might be seeded by the founders or the executives and say, hey, we think this is an area of opportunity, but it's really once you start interacting with the customer that you can then say, oh, yeah, that's a good idea, or that was an awful idea, let's not do that. Right. Or we can change this, or we can pivot. Mm -hmm. um, the next thing is to have all of the people in your organization aligned around things like we're talking the same language, we have the same values. Mm -hmm. And by language, I mean like jargon and stuff like that. Right. Like Jargon can be just as bad as like racism. It's a way of like getting people out of the conversation as much as it is as bringing people closer to the conversation. So you've mm -hmm. got you've to have a language that speaks to what's relevant to the customer, but also how are you going to align the team. Mm -hmm. 
Mm-hmm. And that language is normally built on the values that the, the team is going to be organizing around. Again, starts with the executive, they come up with the original values, mm-hmm. but then the team itself is going to say, well, actually at our product level, those values aren't as relevant. We're going to craft things that work better for us. Mm-hmm. And there's a language that goes along with that. So um, I use the example of the Sky cycling team that right. uses marginal gains as their signaling language. Mm-hmm. What's important to us? What do we care about? Again, not a mathematically correct idea, this marginal gains thing, but it works well as a, a moniker for how am I going to treat you? How am I going right. to treat the, my, my fellow teammates? How am I going to treat the public? How are we going to respond to crisis? So all of those language elements or signaling elements are an important part of high-performing teams. And again, you start to see it when we saw the video of the Formula One team yeah. where they are uh, so well aligned and signaling each other in such a non verbal way Mm -hmm. that they can continue to do their job even though they have a full-on fireproof overall and helmet on and they can't actually see or hear each other but they can still actually do their job yeah i had a question about that so i love that video it was really cool to see them sort of perfectly working together as a team Mm. but and you also in the talk you had a couple of examples of of athletes and athletic teams working together but both of those two things have an element of practice built into what they do. Mm-hmm. And the thing I've been thinking about a lot is how do you, when you look at a high-performing team, especially in a work context, how do you bring that element of like practice? Because I think it's really easy as a former athlete myself say, okay, this is practice, I'm practicing, it's fine. I can break all the movements down really slowly and work on each one of them. But then I have race day. Mm-hmm. But at work, every day is race day. So like, how do you, how have you seen teams sort of handle that? So I would disagree. I don't think every day is race day. Okay. I think uh, race day equivalence in a business is when you have crisis, oh. is when something horrible happens. I think every other day is more attuned to that idea of practice day. Mm-hmm. And I think building a practice the way that you do in athletics is exactly the way you would do it here. It's just not familiar to how organizations tend to work they Mm -hmm. they'll give you onboarding they'll give you a little bit of training and then you're off to the races and everything Mm -hmm. else is learned on the job Mm -hmm. we've discovered that these teams work really well when they keep going back to practice mindset or to learning Mm -hmm. mindset and saying we actually don't know whether we're doing it the right way we need to practice that so they take time just like you at Drift take time to read books and listen to podcasts and actually teach yourself stuff Mm -hmm. these high performing team teams take time to become masters of their own domain by practicing, whether it's within a guild or a functional area mm-hmm. or as a team, those teams are actually calendaring time saying, look, on Mondays, we're going to do this and we're actually going to drop the work schedule and focus on being practiced so that we can be better when crisis happens or when ship day happens. Right. Okay. So then what's part three? Hmm. Um, part three is... Let's see. I'm going to remember them in the reverse order. Yeah. <laughs> <laughs> um, so, where we, oh, one of the things that we noticed is that the mindset is going to be quite different mm-hmm. from, between a high-performing team and a regular team. Uh, the high-performing teams have, firstly, this idea that they're not playing in a finite way like a sport would be played, right. where you're just trying to get through the first or second half of a match and you're trying to get points on the board but rather that it's this infinite game. You're Mm -hmm. always trying to get better, that there is mastery beyond where you are at every step of the way. And that the game that should be played means that you're always gonna beat your competition because your competition is gonna be seeking for that quarterly result or for that 
that event, maybe it's an IPO, maybe it's an acquisition, mm-hmm. whereas you're not seeking that event, you're seeking for what is the best possible outcome for this brand, what's right. the best possible outcome for this experience, for this customer. Um, and it's in um, James Cass, who wrote The Difference Between Finite and Infinite Games, um, talks about how the Vietnam War is actually one of those, where the Viet Cong were fighting the infinite game, right? They were right. just this is our home. We've got mm-hmm. nowhere else to go. We have to just keep fighting until we're dead. Right. Whereas the US were fighting a finite game, which is like we have to occupy this particular space. So mm-hmm. that's the difference and the mentality changes the, the nature of how you, you show up every day. Um, and along with that, I think is also just the, the open versus closed mindset, which Carol Dweck talks, talks a lot about in her books, which is mm-hmm. this, you know, are we going to be open to new learning or are we going to just assume that we know everything? Right. Um, and that open mindset, the idea that, you, that you're not perfect, that you could fail, uh, that, mm-hmm. that you may not have the answer, that you, know, yeah. you can say to your, your subordinates, oh, I don't know the answer to that, even mm-hmm. when they expect you to do it. Um, I think that's, that's an important set of, of you know, um, issues that you have to tackle there. Right. Um, and then the fourth thing was are we creating safe psychological places for mm-hmm. people to be who they need to be? I mean, this is a, a you know, currently a gender issue. It's a race issue. Yep. Um, it's not just a business issue. But I think within business and in context of what we talk about today, safe psychological space isn't um, like a room where you can go and talk to a therapist mm-hmm. about who's irritating you at work, like they have on that show Billions. But rather, do I feel like I can, I can express my opinion or I can share what I think without feeling like I'm gonna be um, repressed by a manager's opinion or by some loudmouth in the room. Like, right. is there place for us to share our opinions with the caveat that even that I can share my opinion, it doesn't mean that everybody has to listen to my opinion um, in that kind of consensus-driven way. Mm-hmm. We're not looking for consensus. Right. Collaboration is not consensus. We can right. we can disagree. You, Maggie, you can tell me your opinion, and I can tell you mine, and we can have a big disagreement about that. Mm-hmm. But we need to have the opportunity to share that. And I think right. the problem with current situations is w- people go to work and they don't feel like they can express those opinions because they've got a structure or a manager or a situation that doesn't allow for that to happen. So. Safe psychological spaces is something that managers and leaders of high-performing teams work a lot on. And it's never done. You're always changing it because you're always bringing new people in. So Mm -hmm. every time you bring a new person, you've got a a change in dynamic. You've got a new person with new opinions and new relatables to bring into the conversation. How do you make sure that those people feel safe and that the people that were interacting in a safe way don't feel like they're being um, adjusted in some way that's negative? Right. And yeah, I mean, that's exactly my question is how do you do that, especially in an environment where maybe you're not the leader, you're not the executive or you're not you don't see yourself as a person who has the power, whatever that means. Mm-hmm. How do you how what's your advice for people from what you've seen in your research to how to start to influence that and create that trust? So you guys at Drift do it without probably even realizing it. Some of it is social. So mm-hmm. taking time to share a coffee or a beer or actually right. go off-site and do these things, those are different maybe um, quantums of the same thing. Mm-hmm. You know, having a coffee on a one, with a one-on-one teammate, yep. that's important. Make time for that. Having a beer with your, your, the five people on your team, mm-hmm. that's important. 
doing an offsite once a month or quarter, whatever it is that, that's relevant to your cadence, mm-hmm. that's important as well. So you deliberately create a cadence of socialization the, where those things, where relationships can, can happen and bonds can form. Mm-hmm. And then the manager needs to insert themselves in ways that maybe, it's, how should I say this, it just seeds the conversation in a more vulnerable, organized way than mm-hmm. maybe a, a social conversation right. would be. So, you know, you and I talking about over a cup of coffee, we talk about, you know, athletics and kids and mm-hmm. stuff like that. Well, maybe if the manager was in the room, they'd say, I want you guys to share maybe an embarrassing moment or a moment mm-hmm. of failure. Mm-hmm. And then I'm showing you that I'm actually a human being because I can express the fact that I'm not perfect and that I've got all these weaknesses. And then you share the same thing and you say, actually, I'm not perfect either. And now that we've got all that shit out the way, right. like, okay, well, yeah. now <laughs> we're it, yeah. much better people because we don't have to worry about you finding out about my weakness. Mm-hmm. I'm telling you what my weakness is. Right. I'm telling you what I'm good at and what I'm not good at. And in doing so, I'm also building trust, right? Mm-hmm. So you know, I say in my talk that vulnerability is the gateway drug to trust. Right. That's trust is the outcome you're seeking in any relationship, especially in these kind of high performing teams. So vulnerability is just the way to peel back the layers until you expose trust. Mm-hmm. So it's sort of like the fastest way to get to trust is by opening yourself up and being vulnerable. I'm not sure. I think so. I think if uh, Brené Brown was here, she'd probably say that that's true. Mm-hmm. I'm, I'm not sure that that's true of every single group. I right. think that maybe the fastest way to trust is in other ways. Mm-hmm. I think a big challenge is very often a way to find trust. Like, um, you know, we were having a conversation earlier about, you know, these reality TV shows when you put a bunch of strangers together and yep. read very challenging situation. Mm-hmm. You start to find out, you know, yeah. <laughs> <laughs> where people's weaknesses are and, yep. and where their chinks in the armor are. So I think it. I think a combination of having a big challenge, mm-hmm. as we discussed in the beginning, yep. which is going to have the right kind of people participate anyway, and then giving those people the opportunity to be vulnerable mm-hmm. sets the stage for that trust to develop. Right. I think what's really interesting is over the four things that you mentioned, having a big, scary, motivating mission, alignment, um, that mindset of mastery, and this idea of psychological safety, we're talking about teams, but you didn't talk at all about the skill set of the people mm. or, you know, how to hire for, you know, it's like, it's really interesting that it's all about the context that these people are in and not about, oh, you need, you know, if we're talking about product teams, you need someone who's amazing at this specific hard skill. Yeah. That's never actually the case. We never heard from anybody that we interviewed and we interviewed several hundred over the course of the books, but specifically for product leadership, maybe a mm-hmm. hundred product leaders. We never ever heard somebody say, well, you need a good UX person or right. you need a great engineer. Uh, they hire for contribution. They hire for, for culture. Mm-hmm. They very rarely worry about skills specifically. Now, that, again, is contextual, right? If you're right. building a rocket ship, you want a great astrophysicist. Yeah. You, you want to make sure you have those skills on the team, but you also want the right astrophysicist. You want that person who's going to culturally fit with what you're trying to do, who mm-hmm. believes in that crazy goal of yours, and also is going to be a good team member. They're going to they're going to show up, thinking team first, thinking how how do I have a relationship with the people on my team that they can trust me, and mm-hmm. when things do go wrong, do I have their back and will they have my back, um, or are they going to turn on me? Mm-hmm. I have one last question on on that part. Do you have any? Have you seen any of the people over the course of your career, the people that you interviewed, talk about 
how they have been vulnerable to you know, sort of outside the high performance team to like a, another team that maybe they don't know as well or work well as work with as well. I think as a as a product person on raw product team, you know, we're okay, maybe good at building that within our individual teams, but maybe when it comes to working with someone else's team or with sales or with marketing who has a set of expectations that we may or may not meet for whatever reason, like how do people, how have you seen people bridge that gap and create this kind of environment? Yeah, so at a structural level that looks like cross-functionality, instead Mm -hmm. of having a product team that's representing, say, UX, design, engineering, development, Mm -hmm. data, you would also actually include sales, um, if you're in a regulated industry, you might mm-hmm. include legal in that. Um, we saw with the teams at uh, John Hancock, they actually put a regulator on the team. Uh, because on the product team? Uh, on the product team, because oh, the, in a highly regulated industry, mm-hmm. that actually makes the difference. So who would have thought to put a lawyer on a product team, but it actually makes sense in certain industries. Mm-hmm. And I think in a high growth environment like Drift is in, sales should be on the product team. I mean, DC and I had this conversation as we walked in this morning. We're like, I don't see any reason why sales should be mm-hmm. sitting by themselves. I think sales should be embedded with the product teams because that's where they offer the most value. And that's where they're going to be able to come back to the product team and say, look, this is what we see at the cold face. Mm-hmm. Product, the product doesn't have to listen to every single thing. Mm-hmm. And by that, I mean implement everything right. that, that sales comes up. But if they're hearing those things, they can start seeking patterns. They can start hearing mm-hmm. for the, the, the obvious opportunities right. and the obvious risks as well Mm -hmm. so i think it's um it's probably not happening as often as we would like to see but we Mm -hmm. are starting to see some pretty bold organizations having cross-functionality mean every aspect of the business not just every aspect of product right that's really interesting i didn't thought about that i think and then you mentioned i think in your talk about how when you do that you still maintain the connections of all the salespeople with each other and their discipline so you have they some They just don't way to sit with each other. Right, right. So, okay. so the, the structure for those who are listening and wondering, how do you actually do this? So mm-hmm. sales doesn't sit with each other. Mm-hmm. They sit in the cross-functional product environment mm-hmm. where you would have one UX person or two engineers and mm-hmm. one researcher, et cetera. They are all sitting in those product teams. Um, structurally, physically, that's where they live. When it comes to organizing themselves mm-hmm. every week, or on the Slack channel, they are talking to sales as well. Yeah. So every week sales gets together and has mm-hmm. an all hand sales meeting. They have their sales channels on Slack, which they're communicating on. Mm-hmm. So it doesn't mean that sales have stopped talking to each other. It just means that they're much more embedded in the product experience, which if you're a customer, think about it for a second, you don't care where sales sits as long as they're delivering value to you. So that's where this all comes around to. You know, we. We talked a little bit about it in this in in the talk this morning, mm-hmm. which is when you start organizing around the customer or the customer problem specifically, you stop thinking about functional organizations. You mm-hmm. start to only think about where is value delivered and how do we deliver that. Right. Yeah, and it's it's also making me think about I was having a conversation yesterday with a member of our customer success team and she was asking you know, how can I how can I be better about giving feedback and how can I find the right people and how do we maintain that as we're growing as a company? And what this makes me think of is cutting down the length of time and the burden of communication because we're all just together. Yeah. And there you, you know, you get rid of that game of telephone that you have to play with, you know, why is product building what they're building when this is what I'm hearing on the phone. 
Yeah, because the tensions in an organization are always going to be between functional groups. Right. Or between product groups that have overlapping interests with the same customer. Mm -hmm. So that's the job of the product leader, ultimately, is identifying where those gaps are and then Mm -hmm. making sure that they're destroyed or smashed by poking holes in them, by Mm -hmm. creating emissaries that come across those different... For instance, let's say you've got a data group. Do you have a data group? Something like... A nascent data group. A nascent data, a nascent data group, mm-hmm. which is generally what's happening in tech, right? Most companies are starting to think about like, well, we need a group of people to think about what's right. going to happen with data. Well, those people should be embedded, but then those people should also be talking to each other. Well, mm-hmm. how do you do that? Well, you get together that group as a guild or a um, community of practice, mm-hmm. and you let them have a conversation on a regular basis about what their technology does and how it could be useful to the customer, mm-hmm. while at the same time doing their job, their day-to-day how do we deliver value right. to the customer using this particular data insight? Mm-hmm. That's a great segue because as someone who's new to this product leader role, I have a lot of questions and I'm rereading <laughs> that book again. Um, and the thing I was curious about is, so you did interview so many, you said 100, more than 100? Yeah, I think we actually list 75 in the book, but the reality yeah. was we interviewed a lot more, uh, just a lot, most of the interviews didn't make it you know, right. to, to the yeah. edit. Yeah. Um, so when when talking about talking to those people, what were the consistent like were there any patterns and consistent sort of traits between them? So not just like what they're doing as product leaders, but who they are and what makes them good at their jobs? Uh, none. Really? Yeah, it's actually very, very interesting. You find people that are I was hoping to get that yeah. secret I could steal. Well no, actually it's it's uh, for me it's quite refreshing because mm-hmm. I th- I was in the same mindset as you. I was right. hoping that there was a set of characteristics that would, and we and we do list them in the book. Like these are the things we see regularly. Like these are mm-hmm. the the buckets of things in terms of behavior or character characteristics that we right. see across those group of leaders. Never mind product leaders, leaders in general. Right. However, in terms of style and personality, I think it's kind of freeing to realize that. It takes all types. Mm-hmm. A good way to think about this is, as, as a South African, you know, I think of statesmanship as uh, a quietly spoken man called Nelson Mandela. Thoughtful, poetic, mm-hmm. philosophical, um, you know, gentle. Um, that's not the leader that everybody would think about when they think of statesmanship. Maybe they think mm-hmm. of like a, a hard-nosed person like a Churchill mm-hmm. or a... Um, Margaret Thatcher or a, a, a Gandhi. Or, there's lots of different right. ways to get to this leadership role. Mm-hmm. Um, and I, it takes all types. So if if you're thinking about that stuff, it's kind of nice to know that your personality is almost perfect because it's not about personality. It's right. more about, you know, are you empathetic? Mm-hmm. Um, are you able to return trust to your the people that work with you in a way that allows them to make good decisions. Those are the characteristics and those are sometimes learned things just like, um, you know, we're all humans and we could all potentially be good athletes in some sport. Mm-hmm. Um, but we we don't know until we try. We don't know right. until we practice that skill until we throw that ball a hundred times or, you know, mm-hmm. pull back that bow a thousand times. We really wouldn't know until we actually practice those things. So. Practicing leadership is not a genetic personality thing. It's, oh, I need to be those things regardless of my personality. How can I, how can I go and develop them? Right. 
Interesting. So what would you, if you had to pick from all the stuff that you, you learned while you were writing that book and doing that research, the first thing a new person in product leadership role should, should work on? Like what's the first thing that you see people struggling with that they should just figure out how to do? Uh, decision making. So I think decision making is probably more of a symptom of trust than mm-hmm. um, something that precedes it. But mm-hmm. what are your what are your thoughts around how you make decisions? Do you think that now that you're in a leadership position, you have to make all the decisions, or mm-hmm. that decision making is the role of leader? Um, we see well matured leaders giving up decision making powers almost entirely. Mm-hmm. They're they're just into building a team of trusting individuals Mm -hmm. that trust each other and work with each other to make really good decisions because decisions are the velocity of an organization Mm -hmm. if you if you things get stuck in the decision making process things don't get done so we live in a a kind of a tech world white collar world where the the currency that we live by is decisions Mm -hmm. what are we going to do tomorrow what are we going to do first how are we going to prioritize these things? Mm-hmm. Which of these things has the biggest value to the customer or to the organization? All of those decisions, however big or small they are, need to be made at some point. And so learning how to be a good decision maker mm-hmm. is really important. And teaching people and yourself to be a good decision maker mm-hmm. um, is important. And I think one of the aspects of that is we like to believe that we can make perfect decisions all the time mm-hmm. and the answer is no right yeah <laughs> you probably make good decisions maybe 10 percent of the time yep. if that um and so relying relying on the idea that you're going to be perfect every time is is mm-hmm. heartbreaking because it never really ends up that way it's, right and i would imagine that slows down your decision making anyway if, if you're the burden that you're putting on yourself as someone who makes decisions is to make a perfect decision yeah you're never going to make them because you're yeah. going to agonize over them yeah. constantly. Yeah, I mean, a good example is we, uh, I've just launched a new co-working business and I know nothing about co-working mm-hmm. and I'm making terrible decisions all along <laughs> the way. And, okay. uh, and, and it's just because I know that getting the business up and running and experiencing those mistakes firsthand mm-hmm. is going to teach me way faster and get me traction way quicker than if I try and read all the research papers and do all the data analysis before I take the first step. Mm-hmm. You know, I could, it could be years before I do the first thing then. Right. And, I, and, and that's really not going to help me. Mm-hmm. Uh, learning a little, you know, it, yeah, it'll cost me a little bit of time and money making mistakes, but it'll cost me more time to delay right. the decision. Yeah, that makes sense. So how, how would you sort of package up like the high performance teams piece and the being a high performance product team leader, like what are your advice for people who are who are listening or watching for what they can like one or two things they should just go back to their teams and try out? So I know you mentioned um, you know better ways to break the ice and build vulnerability, but like what are some some tips that people can use just today, even if they're not you know the leader on their team? Um, something that's really simple to do is how well do you know each other? Mm-hmm. Uh, I think we probably superficially know each other. Well, we know where we, each other, where we live and maybe that we are in this relationship or we have this many kids or a dog or whatever. Mm-hmm. What else do you know about that person? What, what do you know about the things that really bother them or the things that have been their trials over the years? Do you know that they've got a sick friend or partner that they're dealing with at home, mm-hmm. um, that they recently lost a loved one? Those kinds of things we never really take time to do to deal with 
And I think there's probably a little bit of that old-fashioned mentality of like, well, it's got nothing to do with you. Right. Because um, I'm at just, work and... Yeah, I've just never found that to be the case. I think mm-hmm. people working together are... There's no difference than people doing anything together. People are people. Humans mm-hmm. are humans. And they they want to make connections. That's like mm-hmm. we're a social animal and we really benefit from being social with each other. And so the the opportunities for us to share those things, given any environment, are just as valuable as, say, doing it over a beer. Like, right. create that opportunity. Say, look, I, I want you to go and discover something about your teammate that wouldn't ordinarily come up in conversation and, and you know, spend as much time as you want and then come back to me and, like, let's talk about what we found out mm-hmm. and how we relate to each other and what we disagree on and what we don't like about each other. And let's talk about that stuff. That's, that's how we're going to build trust. Right. Yeah, we use a tool called um, Predictive Index to do sort of personality typing. And I find that we have uh, one of the teams I'm on, there's a person who will know who he is if he ever listens to this, who we have both are extremely dominant. And once we we looked at our patterns and we said, oh, this is why we're always arguing, even Mm. when we're having a nice chat and we're agreeing with each other. It just sounds like arguing and it stresses our team out. So we had to figure out how how we could uncover that and work around it. And that's one of the tools that we've used as well. And I think that's really the core of what we're talking about is mm-hmm. do we know each other well enough that we can talk about that openly? Right. Or are we just making a whole bunch of assumptions about each other? Right. Like, I think you might be dominant. Mm-hmm. I think I might be dominant. Mm-hmm. And that's why we're arguing. But I'm not going to say that because I don't know that for right. sure. But things like the predictive index or disk tools or anything, yeah. really, they're just a conversation starter. Mm-hmm. And and I say this about, I wrote a book about design sprints. Design mm-hmm. sprints are just or a trick, a parlor trick to get people talking to each other. So all of the exercises in a design sprint are actually exercises that we would use in this context, Mm -hmm. breaking the ice and and connecting people and Mm -hmm. having them overcome certain things. So for instance, doing assumption storming. Mm -hmm. Have people do an assumption storming test and find out who is using those assumptions to drive their decision making Mm -hmm. and which of those assumptions are potentially dangerous. Because they might think that those assumptions are perfectly acceptable, that they're right. part of the normal culture of the organization or that mm-hmm. they, they did it at their previous company. So they, why shouldn't they do it here? Mm-hmm. Um, and they're not maliciously assuming things. They're just right. walking into it with any other bias like they, mm-hmm. or that they might have. So all of the exercises in the design sprint are really just parlor tricks to get people to talk to each other. And once you've done that kind mm-hmm. of thing, you go, oh, my God, I, I actually don't really know what we were working on, but I know all the people that I work with much better now and I feel like we could actually do anything together yeah yeah I agree one of the small things that we started doing as a team as well was we had a couple of instances where we weren't all on we realized probably too late that we weren't exactly on the same page and so we've now started this new little cultural thing on this one team where all right you draw it and I'll draw it and then we're going to show each other the drawings of it and we're going to see if it's the same because if it's not then we haven't actually communicated whatever it is that we're working on yeah so that's something another little trick that we've been using to try to suss out the differences that's right that's actually one of the design sprint exercises everybody has to draw a pink elephant right yeah and you'd think that that would be relatively consistent some people draw a a child's toy and other people will draw an actual elephant that's pink and Mm -hmm. and you're like well that's not the same thing yeah and we, were, we did it for an Excel file. Like we were building an export and we literally sat down and we drew out what this Excel wow. file would look like because we wanted to make sure we knew exactly what we were doing. Wow. So. Cool. Yeah, that's one thing we use. <laughs> well, again, Richard, thank you so much for coming. I really appreciate you coming You're on welcome. the podcast. 
Um, the talk was amazing. Everyone should buy the product leadership book. And you have another book coming out? I'm working on a book more specifically about high performing teams okay. because that's a part of the book that resonated with a lot of folks. And, yeah. and what I've realized is that as I spread my research a little bit wider than product, I started mm -hmm. to see like the Formula One teams. I spent right. some time with them in Barcelona and um, some of the other weird little retail organizations that I, mm -hmm. I have had an opportunity to work with. They're just because they're in tech doesn't mean they're doing things differently. They're all right. actually very similar. They yeah. do. I'll tell you this one example is mm -hmm. an organization or company that has three stores in um, a small town and they're, they all do different things, but they're owned by the same people. Mm -hmm. And the people that work at one store sometimes work at another store and they kind of go between and these yeah. very, very high performing team uh, that does this work. And we're having an event at this coffee shop essentially that they own. Mm -hmm. And uh, the guys from the other store who have got nothing to do with the coffee shop just walked over and started helping. And mm -hmm. that's a non-verbal signal to say, I've got your back. I can see that you're overwhelmed with this right. event that you're doing. And I'm going to start folding and organizing chairs and you know, cleaning up stuff without mm -hmm. being asked. And th th that's the kind of high-performing team stuff that you start to see in non-tech things is mm -hmm. people are j just signaling to each other what's important and what's not and right. how to then create a better outcome. And that's, that's what I want to write about. I want to write okay. about... What does it look like for everybody, not just for mm -hmm. products or right. digital or tech? What does it look like if you're a high-performing team in any industry or any capacity? Mm -hmm. Cool. So when that's out, we'll, we'll talk plug again. it on the podcast. <laughs> yeah. um, thanks so much again. Really appreciate you coming. Everyone who's listening, I need new reviews just for me now that I'm on my own podcast. So hit me up with the – I'll take five stars. I'm not even going to pull the six-star game on this one. But please leave a review, and we'll put Richard's – information in the show notes. Cool. Thanks. Thanks, Maggie. Yeah, thanks. thanks.